Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're, we're really excited to have Vivek Vade on the show with us. Vivek serves as a Chief Technology Officer for Forkites, where he leads the development of an industry-leading visibility and machine learning platform for the supply chain industry. Prior to Forkites, Vivek served as the Chief Data Officer for Uptake, a leader in predictive analytics for industrial IoT space here in Chicago. As the head of technology for Morningstar's institutional business, platform, and mobile technologies, he led a global team of over 500 people across 13 different countries. In addition, Vivek spent a decade in consulting, retail, airline, uh, financial vertical, building cutting-edge products, speaking, and crafting motivated teams. Hi, Vivek. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Vivek. Thank you, Patrick and Shelley. Uh, thank you for having me here. Although I think I'm in the wrong show because I'm not a visionary <laughs> uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we're going to find out about that. <laughs> I think other people would say otherwise, but I really do appreciate the humility. But if uh, you know, I've kind of kick this off, you know, if, if you don't mind uh, sharing with our listeners, uh, for those who aren't aware about uh, the organization you're currently with, Four Kites, uh, if you could just explain a little bit about, you know, what you're doing there, their market fit, their opportunities. It's a truly Chicago company uh, in that we do uh, technology where it actually does work. Uh, so I'd love to hear, share, if you could share more about what Four Kites is doing. Absolutely. So Forkites is uh, relatively new to the Chicago scene. The company is uh, about five years old. It was founded by uh, an ex-Kellogg uh, graduate, uh, Matt Elingical. Uh Matt spent some time in the logistics space, uh, you know, sort of before his uh, before his time at Kellogg's. And so, you know, he saw this sort of need for uh, the ability for us to get information that is cross enterprise stage together. So we live in a logistics industry today that spends over a trillion dollars uh, in, in spend in the US alone, another trillion dollars in spend uh, outside the US. Uh, and the information in this space is extremely fragmented. You've got uh, companies with uh, supply chains that, you know, span all the way from a factory in Shanghai you know, perhaps sending uh, goods on a truck to a port, uh, you know, on a ship, that ship then, you know, goes uh, to South Africa, there is a transshipment there, comes to port in LA, there may be a truck that then transports the the, the goods from uh, that ship to a rail yard, that train then comes to a port in Chicago, that then gets transported by another truck to a distribution center, that distribution center then sends all of that to its retail stores. I mean, just, you know, all of that uh, sort of seems like logical. Yeah, why not? You know, that seems like how the industry works. But, uh, you know, our customers have uh, about 20 to 25 percent of their total inventory in motion at any given point in time. When I say in motion, it's in transit from, you know, the sport of, you know, sort of the manufacturing origin all the way through to, you know, the, the consumption of, of that goods. And uh, 
you've uh, you've got this extremely complex supply chain that is managed uh, a, a lot of it is on on paper and different systems all of these companies are operating in their own silos in their own systems and when you come back and say hey you know i am a global you know company i'm i'm sort of looking at this stuff globally how do i get a single pane of view to all of this stuff it was impossible and it was also i think unfathomable for these companies to say that is the expectation of how we run our business you know we look at a lot of the stuff that google has done with just text and you know google has taken you know textual search information across the globe and created products like auto suggest that we now take as you know just common sense like yeah of course that's how auto suggest works but you know rewind uh, 10 years and there was no auto suggest and the first time google took this uh, human uh, sort of domain knowledge and constructed auto suggest out of it you know everyone was blown like when i type you know uh, cro and you type cro we get completely different results and strangely the first five results you know contain some of the information that we are looking for so the logistics industry is sort of going through a little bit of that same transformation where it is going from you know we don't have data at all and we don't expect the data to drive our decisions to circa you know 2020 where people are like uh, i think we do need data to make our decisions and when they see the implication of all of this information available to them at their fingertips you know people just assume that wow how did we run our business without that type of model uh, looking back we sort of you know don't really understand the the domain that these uh, companies sort of work in and so for me it has been an incredible learning opportunity to just really understand the complexity of supply chains for you know all of these fortune 100 companies that are you know supporting our main street economy i mean the technology companies are supporting the main street companies but they are the companies that are supporting the real world uh, economy and so so we are you know very fortunate to be working with them we have companies like you know smithfield that are uh, that is the largest i think pork manufacturer in in the us and i think the exporter as well uh, and uh, it, it's quite incredible to see how complex their supply chains are and how sophisticated they can be uh, without that uh, it reminds me of an anecdote a little bit uh, about uh, this uh, dabba system in india so india has this uh, dabba means lunch box essentially and what this ecosystem provides is uh, you can have someone come get you your lunch to work. And there is a logistic supply chain where, you know, there is, you know, uh, all of this is word of mouth where someone goes to your house, picks up your lunchbox, and then transports it to the station. Someone else will take it to another station. And then they, you know, it's basically a hub and spoke model and how they distribute this stuff. And it's all, you know, uh, by word of mouth. and you know, a lot of the industry sort of operates in that way anecdotally. And it's amazing that, you know, all of this stuff comes together. So, uh, you know, coming back a little bit to uh, forecasts, what we do uh, with that context is get information from all kinds of moving assets. Uh, that asset can be a truck, that asset can be a train, it can be an airplane, it can be a truck or a full truckload, less than truckload, so on and so forth. So we get, you know, this telematic data from you know thousands and thousands of organizations 
uh, we manage we i think we have we have connected to over 3 million assets today and uh, you know we take that information and stitch it with the company's uh, logistics management system so things like you know purchase orders things like you know their origin and uh, destination and so on and so forth and we bring all of this stuff information together in a semantically cohesive way to give them a view to their entire supply chain and it's uh, quite amazing uh, what results companies accomplished based on the data they have clearly with chicago being you know one of the biggest hubs right the center of of transportation logistics supply chain i looked on g2.com uh, to to kind of see where you know your organization fell from the rankings and things like that there's not a lot of competitors in this space not not serious competitors so why do you think historically there there haven't been too many competitors i think the problem that uh, you get from a lot of different uh, sort of spaces is that you have to think of it from the client's point of view versus the provider's point of view so what's happening is providers are saying that look i provide best in class service and uh, you know a lot of them are just phenomenal uh, providers of that service, and that can be a trucking service or a you know shipping service, and so on and so forth. And those providers are just providing really fantastic service to their clients. Where the clients are struggling with is to stitch together this holistic view of all of their providers. And there is a natural problem in this industry where there is no provider that is going to give their data to someone else, right? I mean that just will not happen. And so because of that, you know, Forkites has been able to sort of create this space where we are a neutral uh, provider of information and analytics based on, you know, all of these different parties to the ecosystem. Uh, Chicago is interesting, uh, is an interesting space because I think our customers relate a lot more to us because of that. I mean, it's it's a it's a hard, it's a nuanced uh, thing uh, to some extent, but when you are working with, you know, these manufacturing companies and these supply chains, and th- their th- the user base and that company is much more comfortable with a company style that is grounded in Chicago values versus the Silicon Valley values. There's nothing wrong with that, but there is just this. Uh, natural bias, uh, maybe you call it tribalism to some extent, that we want to work with people like us. And so that allows sort of a greater affinity uh, to uh, to a company like Forkites that has a value system of the types of companies that we serve. And so there isn't a lot of friction in that. You know, we we understand sort of their, their world and we sort of have uh, agreed to sort of you know work in 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 synchronicity of of how the, the our customers value systems work as well. Yeah, it, it is interesting though when when you think about like the amount of investment that's going on in that space, right? The, the digitization, you know, that type of transformations that are going on, and I, I think that leads into a good question about ROI and creating value, creating opportunities, right? And so. I guess uh, you know one of the you recently wrote an article where you touched on that idea of like you know technical versus product investment. And I thought maybe if you could share some of your ideas around what does that mean to you, right? What's the difference between technical and product investment? Absolutely. So you know, I, I think uh, 
the, the Fourkites uh, philosophy has been, and my philosophy as well, is let's do work in service of customers. Now, depending on who you are functionally within an organization, you're going to have a different perspective on what will make the customer successful, right? So if you're on the product support side, you're hypersensitive to making sure you know the customer operations are running smoothly. If you're sort of on the product side, you're really making sure that you're creating product that meets the customer's you know sort of business needs, and there is a real sort of uh, you know synchronization to that. If you're on the engineering side, you're trying to really provide a substrate uh, from an engineering platform perspective that meets all of these different demands. Uh, if you're from the sales side, you want to be able to you know, showcase these things in a very effective manner to customers and also make sure that, you know, we have our ear to the ground on on, on that. So you've got a lot of these constituents uh, that, you know, in an organization make it effective in order to uh, serve the, the customer request. So the stance that we have sort of tried, I shouldn't say stance, but the culture we've tried to create is to have every function not start the discussion with here is what I want to do, but here is why I want to do it. Uh, I think starting discussions with here is why versus here is what enables you to sort of bring this cross-functional group together in supporting uh, that decision. So, you know, we undertook uh, this, uh, we've undertaken some significant uh, technical investments uh, in the last year to improve the quality of data, to improve the integration processes, to improve the quality of experience that our customers get. Uh, we have invested in performance of the application, in some cases reducing or improving the performance by 4x uh, in, in some of these cases, perhaps reducing the time to uh, you know uh, produce a certain result that may be offline, so on and so forth. So when we go about sort of this, uh, when we go about sort of making the decisions on this uh, on this side, you know, we're really uh, thinking about how we make those decisions to be business centric versus you know resume centric to some extent. Uh, you know, there there was a phase I think in engineering where a lot of development was resume driven versus business driven. I think <laughs> we are past that. I think we're past that phase to some extent. I feel like maybe, you know, the maybe the you know service orientation phase was was that maybe around what ten years back where everything was seemed to be resume driven. I think we're past that phase now. But um, you know, so what is what is the balance between uh, product centric versus engineering centric then become? It's really about thinking from these different perspectives and making allocations to support these different perspectives and not over-indexing on one or the other. So over-indexing would mean that I am going to abandon uh, all my governance and I'm going to only invest in one point of view. And that point of view may be, I need to build a new feature that comes from you know customer demand. Uh, another point of view may be we need to improve performance, availability, reliability, you know, business continuity, disaster recovery, and all of those things, and we say we will not, you know, do any of those. That is when the company starts sort of making poor decisions because they are not thinking about all of the points of view that the organization brings to the table. Because all of these points of view need to have a singular business or mission of essentially delighting customers. 
it's a really interesting perspective. So that balancing act of, because when you're, when you're starting out, it's very just feature, right? It's what does the customer need? How are we going to get that next big customer, right? How do we, how do we close that next big deal? And I love the resume driven architecture model. Uh, I've, I've witnessed it firsthand. I was a little very confused by it. Like, why are we, why would you decide this? It seems incongruent. And then, you know, you realize it's not actually for the benefit of the company, but I think, you know, you touch on that balancing act of like going from full throttle features to almost innovation crippling code. You're looking at either, you know, risk removal, right. Or, you know, uh, refactoring, right. Where you're, you're going back and paying back technical debt. Right. So how do how do you take that throttle from like the, the featured, you know, defect p- things people see, right. From a product standpoint to the things that you're going to need, not today, but hopefully very soon as things start to throttle up. Right. And so and I, I think part of like a successful technologist, you know, how do you, you know, manage the product in a way that you're, you're communicating to people, look, we have to turn the dial a little bit. We can't, we're not going to yank on, on these levers. Like it's all stop on features. We've got to go back and re-architect everything. But, you know, there's parts of our house that needs a little love. I, I think it's a combination of, of two things. Uh, I think it's a combination. It's, it's an art for sure. Uh, and then I think the, a big part of it is uh, emotional intelligence and leadership. Uh, it's you know it's a, it's the same way like when you're you know growing you, you know when you're raising a child you decide when they need to be disciplined and when it is okay for you to give in it's that parental instinct that drives you to decide where on that spectrum you need to be on any given day because if you're like you know total lockdown on everything you're going to have a different <laughs> outcome right and if you're like yeah you know you should go have a rave party every weekend that's going to have a different outcome so if you if, if people think of that instinct within themselves saying how where do i center when i'm raising my child where do i lean when i'm raising my child and and how do i make that decision to me it's the same thing uh same type of gut instinct that you apply on the business side which is you know, I need to make sure that I have the right balance of, you know, this, uh, you know, building new product versus making sure that the product that we have built is being used and is usable by our customers. And usability is where all of the, you know, technical uh, illities sort of uh, come into play. So I, th- I think sort of I, I, it's hard to say that, you know, use this metric or that metric to drive that, I think it's just your leadership capability and your leadership sense and you're keeping your ear to the ground that, you know, sort of allows you to index uh, at the right place based on where uh, you are at, where your customers are at. You know, you also have to know when not to listen uh, too much or read too much into things, uh, you know, where, you know, uh, you've, you've given someone, a, you know, a, a megaphone and they're sort of making an undue uh, use of that. So it's a, it's a, it's a cop-out answer. It is not, not at all. It is the exact answer. Yeah. It's a 20 year experience set. Uh, <laughs> all of the, and this is why some companies succeed and some companies fail. 
it isn't uh, you know when I, I i i did a startup a long time uh, ago and i was uh, terrified of sharing my idea because i thought that my idea was an insanely good idea it was around providing uh, you know sort of auction capabilities for automotive repair it's like you know if you are a user and you want to get some repair done i'm going to you know provide your request for that service to a whole bunch of service providers they're going to provide a reverse auction to what they essentially want to you know charge for it and you would go to one of them so i i was in this zone uh, right after school where i thought that's going to change the world we spend 66 billion dollars a year on automotive repair and that's the thing to do so i was terrified of sharing my idea and uh, i spent about a year and a half two years on on building this idea and i came to the conclusion during that point in time that ideas are you know worth pennies uh, the, the the idea itself is not what makes the thing a business uh, what makes a thing a business is is all about execution and all about sort of following through on the things that matter so you know when i go back to how do you make that decision between indexing one way or another it is all of those things that you know allow a company to you know really grow and uh, service their customers and create the right messaging and uh, and make them successful if we make our customers successful then i don't worry about forecast success that's awesome the analogy with the kids um i just want to make sure my wife hadn't called you and said <laughs> hey uh tell pat kind of like time to lighten up a little bit uh because yeah yeah i fall into the lockdown side of the house of uh broken glass kind of philosophy of like uh we overreact but it's a great analogy, and I think you, you touch on it. It's not a cop out answer. It's it is the answer. It is a balance, and it's it's hard. I mean, this is this is your, these are the challenges of leadership of making decisions where X doesn't equal some number, right? And it's nuanced, and it 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 takes you know some understanding. So when you share, I, I actually want to add one more thing to it, uh, and that is about building a great team. So I I don't want to sort of uh, lead us to the conclusion that a leader with the right nuance is the right solution for the company. A leader that has a great team that has the right nuance is the best solution for the company. It is not a singular person. It is a, a team. And so that team is what really, really matters. And so for me, uh, I index more towards how do I get you know my team to a place where they are better than me in making that decision in order for us to go down the right path. And so I think, you know, to me, that part of it is probably 5x more important than you yourself having the, the right nuance. And I think a lot of people stumble on that in, in that they don't, they don't really elevate the team importance to as much as it needs to be. Uh, I think that is probably... Uh, a, a big part of having the company at the right nuance level. I'm glad you brought that up, Vivek. And, you know, I'm a little biased. I've worked with you in the past. I know you're a great leader, but I'm just curious, when you came into Four Kites, did you inherit your team? Did you hire them? Is it a mixture of both? And and then just from a technology standpoint, obviously it's it's very hard for you to find talent. So how do you find those folks that really fit with Four Kites' um, culture, which seems to be around delighting customers? So I think the answer is uh, is both. I think that the first 10 developers that joined 
uh, four kites, about 80% of them are still uh, at four kites. Uh, and, and they started when they were 10. That, that was it. There was no, <laughs> there was no team. You know, I mean, you know, our funding was uh, very anemic at that point in time. And so it is not the company that uh, that we are at today. We are, we are at about 500 people now. So uh, to me, you know, there is a huge attribution to uh, the two founders, uh, Matt and Arun, that sort of created the right sensibility to begin with, because that sensibility has uh, percolated in the organization through the years. Um, we have brought in a lot more people that you know sort of to round out the team. So we do so we do both, uh, you know, hiring new people as well as uh, sort of you know boosting or amplifying the people that have been with us. We are uh, adding more to our leadership team in Chicago. We're hiring uh, a VP of security, a director of engineering. We're hiring engineers in Chicago to sort of you know again going back to that you know indexing the right way to make sure that we have the right balance of our team in the right locations. Great. Thank you. I don't know if I answered your question, though. (laughs) Uh, No, no, I I think you did. I I think uh, the second piece of it is, again, because it's such a tight labor market, you know, how do you how do you find those people who really fit the dynamic of your team and, and the culture that you're trying to build? Right. You know, I, I joined ThoughtWorks when it was 300 people. Uh, you know, ThoughtWorks is now, I think, over 5,000 people. It has probably the most luminaries that I am aware of in the in the tech industry, maybe outside of IBM. Uh, and uh, well, and I, I can vouch for that because when I need to steal some content, I definitely go to ThoughtWorks. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I was very fortunate to, to, to have worked there. The, uh, you know, the conversation we had then uh, 15 years ago was the same conversation we have now. The industry is super tight. We possibly cannot find the best and brightest minds uh, to work here. And uh, it, you know, we had the same conversation at when I was at, uh, at Morningstar and Uptake as well. So I don't think that equation has changed. I mean, it has always been hard to find people. It has never, ever in my 20 years of working been easy to find people. But I think the question is, I think the question that you're sort of getting at is how do you how do you attract the right people? How do you you know make this uh, a location or a home for people to to go to? I think the question for that is when you have people at that level of performance and level of uh, sort of uh, capability, they are not looking for a paycheck. They know they can get a paycheck. I mean, most people that uh, you know I've had the chance to work with. Um, they know they can make a call to me, and I would, you know, give them a job. Uh, and so they they're not they're not not moving because uh, because uh, you know they they need a new paycheck. In fact, uh, I'll give you a slight detour and go back to your question. There was a, a colleague of mine that had worked with me before, and uh, he reached out to me for a referral, and I offered him a job instead. Uh, yeah, so that was, that's uh, that's the market that's the market uh, that exists in Chicago. So I think if people understand what your mission is, and people feel they are going to work in an A plus team, I think the, you automatically become a place for them to go because you know A plus people want to work with other A plus people. Yeah. So how do you create that team of equals where they feel that? They're not going to be sort of, you know, the only smart person in the room and everyone else is just looking to them for direction. So you create that model 
people don't want to leave that because they won't get that elsewhere. They will not get that in a consulting company with half a million people. Yeah. They just won't. And so they don't want to go to that because life is too short. Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, they should definitely go to consulting firms that are under 50 people <laughs> named Dragon Space. <laughs> That's right. I have had good experience with small consulting companies. So I would actually echo that uh, echo that sentiment that if you are going to choose a consulting company to work with, you know, pick the pick the companies that really care about technology and aren't uh, post technology. I I appreciate that. Yeah, it, I do think you you touch on a great part about culture and and some of the things that you know. I think maybe a the person wasn't really actually reaching out for a referral, more checking to see if they could come <laughs> home and, and work with somebody that they they trusted. And I I think we're both at that point in our career where we've got people that do reach out that, uh, you know, Hey, I saw you're at a new place. You know, is there an opportunity? Is that something, you know, fits my career path as well? I, I think, you know, you know, building those relationships, not just with, and I know Shelly and I talk about this all the time about who are your mentors. And I think we're going to get to that. Um, but also who are you being a mentor to, right? Who are you, you know, uh, my guidance to a lot of younger people, less experienced people is, you know, I know the money is seductive and I understand, you know, there's a certain portion where it's like, hey, it matters and it doesn't matter. But in, in the vacuum of that, I do think, you know, finding somebody who's going to have an impact on your career, not just at this job, right, but actually have an impact on your next job and maybe even the job after that and and help you. So I and I wonder, and so this is kind of as a couple of ways we could go is the, the, you know, how to be a mentor, but also I wondered, you know, lessons learned on as you've gotten to the level of success that you've had being a CTO, right? And your path and and the things that you did and having gone from great organizations, you know, like ThoughtWorks is, I agree a hundred percent. They, they're an awesome organization. I admire them greatly uh, to Morningstar and Uptake and some of these really very identifiable, visible organizations and having some really, uh, you know, amazing success at those organizations. Was that part of the plan? Was that like when you thought about your career, were you intentional about it? I know we talked about this briefly earlier, but I, I'd really like to for you to share your experience and, and your, 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 how you went about doing that. Because I think a lot of people are aspirational into the CTO role. And I don't think there's a lot of clarity as to like, how does somebody set themselves up for that kind of success? Uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a hard uh, hard one to to answer. I think uh, it's a combination of serendipity and what you choose to do with your time. Uh, and I say serendipity in, in 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 the way that you honestly don't know who your network is and how that network is going to ultimately shape your life because a lot of your life is shaped on on how your network is and who you may or may not have interacted with. So that is sort of the serendipity aspect of it. The intentional part of it is really what you choose to do with your time. I think uh, there there is uh, there are mentors and then there are jobs that train change the trajectory of where your life goes. Uh, so you don't so it's not necessarily hey you know I'm going to take the job to become the CTO I'm going to take that job to to become that it is really what is the what is the job what is what is interesting enough about it that will change the trajectory of where you're going and really understanding that is is important i think if you 
work for a consulting company when you're young, it gives you the ability to be productive at a speed that is um, almost unreal, right? I mean, uh, we talked about, you know, boutique consulting companies. When a consultant comes from Dragon Spears or, you know, uh, you know another consulting company at, 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 at say, Forkites, you know, it's uh, it's very uh, it's very interesting how quickly they have to get up to speed. You know, we expect them to be productive in three or four days, right? And there is a lot <laughs> of pressure on the consultant to say, how do I get my shit together? How do I understand enough about the technology, the stack, the business, the process, and all of that stuff? Distill it, you know, so that I can be productive as fast as possible. And they don't even realize that's a skill, right? They just think of that as I, that's my job. I got to just do it. Right. And then you do it over and over again. And over a period of time, you get to a point where you can be dropped into a completely new and random situation uh, and uh, just know how to sort of deal with it because you've trained that muscle where you are being dropped over and over again into a new random situation and you have to be productive. So I think sort of my consulting part of the career helped me with uh, with that, uh, at some point in time, you know, I, you know, I moved into the product side of the house because I really wanted to own the outcomes. I didn't want to sort of, you know, recommend and move on. I wanted to actually own the outcomes and the budget of the decisions uh, that that I was making. So that uh, that sort of leap was a personal leap. It wasn't necessarily a career leap. It was just like that's what I wanted to do, and that may or may not be what you know someone else uh, listening to this may want to do. Uh, and within that, I think uh, the the thing that has really helped me over the years is really keeping that focus on business outcome. I think having that uh, having that laser sharp view and having clarity on the business outcome has really uh, allowed me to do things uh, at a scale perhaps that wasn't necessarily even thought uh, was required because. You know, you're approaching it from that perspective. So I think those two things probably have uh, helped helped a lot. Uh, the third thing I would say, uh, I think you mentioned that a little bit earlier in terms of mentors and managers. Uh, people learn from watching. You know, people don't learn about leadership technology from a book. I mean, you read books to get vocational information, but you don't learn to become a leader because you've read a book about leadership. You learn about leadership by watching a good leader by being uh, with a good leader by learning from their successes and their mistakes right i mean you should learn from other people's mistakes not just your own so those those three things i think are important ingredients for uh, people to just succeed in their in their life uh, and sort of be all they can be and all they want to be that's a great point and i, I do think you know the learning from others not doing the same i, I having worked at a large but ultimately not successful, you know, cell phone manufacturer here in the greater Chicagoland area that I, I won't name. I learned a lot of like what I wouldn't do as a leader watching some of the the managers and and some of the people I reported to of like, I'll never do that to other people, right? Those things get ingrained, right? And it's like you, you learn from other people's mistakes, you know, I just do a large organization walking past you know, empty parking spots that were reserved for executives while I'm parked three miles out definitely did not incentivize me to be highly productive that day. Right. And I know that's, it seems, 
uh, goofy, but I think those are the things that do taint you or they, they help create a different perspective and, and empathy for the people that you're going to lead later on in life. Right. I think you use the interesting word empathy. Uh, I think of the opposite word that destroys companies is apathy. Uh, right. Uh, then, you know, uh, one of my uh, previous managers, Greg Goff, just a super nice guy uh, that I worked with, had this interesting phase that people sort of in their careers get to a point where uh, they think of money as flowing. Right. They just think that money flows and I don't have to do anything to make money as an employee of the company. The company will make money, but it's not my responsibility to, to sort of affect that. That just is going to happen. And then you sort of move from uh, being an empowered individual that actually makes decisions to change outcomes to a watcher. And you're just watching things happen and there is apathy that sets in. And once you have uh, you know, a growing percentage of your company that is apathetic, that is the type of stuff that then goes wrong. And we've seen things in the marketplace with uh, you know, safety concerns and things like that of organizations where you know, uh, there is sort of an eventual, you know, uh, culture in the company where there is apathy towards certain things and that balance of, 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 of things gets lost. And, and that's what sort of, you know, destroys uh, even great companies. So one last concept, right? What is the most important thing that you've learned in the last year? What's the thing that if you were going to teach an MBA class today, right? If you're in front of a class over at Kellogg or, or University of Chicago, and they said, okay, give us the one thing you've learned that really impacted the way you think right? in the last year. I think in the last year, I'd say uh, I lost both my parents. Uh, so sorry, Vivek. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you learn a lot of things uh, when that happens. And uh, so, you know, the, the thing that uh, sort of uh, I learned from that experience is uh, we uh, put a lot of stock in capital and not enough stock in people. Anyway, so I think, uh, you know, I think that probably is a life lesson um, sort of uh, uh, I've, I've come to appreciate more uh, over uh, the last year. So I, I, would, uh, I would probably say that would be a sort of important aspect of people to think through sort of what their, uh, what they, where their priorities are, especially as you go through some of the impact of the coronavirus and things like that. I think it's important to sort of uh, appreciate and embrace uh, your family. Uh, and I think the other big thing is uh, you have to, you know, engage life. Don't sort of take a job and just stick it out. You know, you have to embrace life. You have to sort of do uh, what you enjoy doing. You have to, you know, sort of uh, be in it and don't just watch it. I, I think if you if you embrace uh, things that you are engaged with, it creates a very different outcome. That's, That's awesome. Great advice. That's awesome. I I think about our grandparents. I think about our parents. I think about how does it all end, right? What do we have at the end? And I think about the relationships, the people, the stories, the experiences. That's the real value, right? We're not taking any of the money with us the last time I heard. Yeah, when you think about all of the people that you worked with and the people that you would call uh, 20 years of, of, of your experience, you're going to call the people that you enjoyed working with. I mean, that's, you know, that's really what your network is. It doesn't matter how smart someone was. It matters, uh, you know, the relationship that you had with uh, that person. That's awesome. Yeah.
You're uh, you're reminding me. I, so I do Peloton. So I love this one instructor because she's super sassy and uh, she basically <laughs> says, "I know you're really killing yourself right now, but guess what? You got up today. It's a privilege." Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I gotta try Peloton out some point. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta. I don't know if you've seen the. Uh, I know we'll edit this out, but there's that JP Sears guy. Uh, you know, he does all those like videos where he makes fun of people. He's got one for Peloton. It's pretty funny. Oh, is it? Okay. I'll share it with you, yeah. uh, Shelly, and then you'll get mad at me. I sent it to a couple <laughs> of folks that I know that do Peloton. They're like, you know, Pat, you could use working out. And I'm like, yeah, I could. You're absolutely right. I'm built for comfort, not speed, though. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a life choice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate that that last stuff. That's hard. I really think uh, it's very brave of you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you Thanks. for being vulnerable. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you're a great leader. I think we can all tell that already. You know, that's not easy stuff to to talk about. So, um, I think we're we're gonna kind of wrap it up at this point. Uh, amazing stuff. I really appreciate you sharing your experience. Oh, thank a lot you for of success. having me. No, I mean the impact that you've had with your career in Chicago with the organization you've been at, and uh, really excited about what you're gonna do next. So. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your time. And we also wanted to thank our listeners. Uh, we really appreciate all of you uh, listening and taking time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.